I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. And I just realized the darn store's closed. And now I have to pay bills. And I'm sad now. It's okay, James. It's okay. It's okay. Do you want to want my make you feel young again? What? I got free tickets to the whole Toy Hall of Fame. Oh. You can play with your favorite toys. Come on, let's go. Good afternoon, good evening, good whatever time of day it is. Welcome once again to Gaming Street of Regulars. My name's James Iris, joined as always by Chrissy Harding. Hi everyone! And as our awkward 40-year-old selves uh, realize we can't really use the hula hoop like we used to. <laughs> I never could use the hula hoop. I got one I got one hula and that was the end of the hoop. I sucked at hula. We are talking today about the National Toy Hall of Fame and its myriad number of inductees, a total of, what, 78? Right now we are at 78. We talked about the latest class um, in one of our earlier podcasts, the class of 20, what was it, 2021? 2021. We did that Girl Dolls, Risk, and Sand. Yep. So we decided that we should talk about a little bit more about the Toy Hall of Fame because that is kind of one of our many claims to fame here in Rochester. What kind of goes into it? And we're going to talk about the original 17 toys that were inducted in the years of 1998 and 1999, including Barbie had a bit of controversy with Barbie. But yes, we are going to all 17. So strap in. We're going to also talk a little bit of our favorite memories and a little bit of a history of each of the toys. Some we were good at. Frisbee. Some we sucked at. Hula hoop. Um, yep. And some we were like, what the heck is this? Tinker toys. <laughs> I never had one. So I'm like, what is a tinker toy? So let's begin, shall we? Yes, let's shall. And I was thinking we'd do this by category. So let's start with toys used for art. Okay. Well, do you want to start a little bit of explaining to people kind of what the Toy Hall of Fame is? Or did we already do oh. that and I missed it? We did a little bit of it, but, you know, we could say that it was established in 1998 under the direction of Ed Sobe at the A.C. Gilbert's Discovery Village in Salem, Oregon. Which we need to list, add to our list of places to go because I kind of want to check that out now. Yeah, but they had to move it to our neck of the woods in the Strong Museum of Play at Rochester, New York in 2002 after it outgrew its original home. Yeah, once once it kind of hit 17 people, and I will say the Discovery Village, is a, from what I've seen of it doing the research for this, it is a very cute museum, but I can understand why after, I think, not even 17, I think it was like, got up to like over 20 inductees, it kind of started to outgrow its home a little bit. Also, if my count is correct, it was when it reached 26 inductees. Yeah, sounds about right. The other thing kind of cool with it, too, is um, at Strong itself, we actually had to renovate it again to expand it to more to to be able to add more to it. And it's a more interactive exhibit now. And I, I will tell you that there is a criteria. So we just don't pick popular toys to go in here. 
there's an actual, there is a couple of criteria that we do use. Anyone can nominate a toy. So you can actually go onto the Strong Museum and nominate a toy that's not already in the Toy Hall of Fame. Those criteria are the icon status. Um, is the toy widely recognized, expect, respected, and remembered? The longevity of the toy, is it more than just a passing fad? Is it something that's lasted longer than a year or two? We're looking at you, Beanie Babies. I think they, even, I think they were even nominated a few years ago. Discovery. Does it foster learning, creativity, or quote-unquote discovery? Does this toy allow us to kind of explore imagination, teach us skills, teach us important lessons, and innovation? Did this toy change how people play, or was the toy design something different than what we've had before? Now, some of these fit certain categories more than others. I mean, I don't think we can exactly call sand innovative. Well, I could too. I mean, if you think about it, though, sand is actually one of the original things that kids use to build with. You True. put a kid, he, trust me, just go and sit at Charlotte Beach and just watch kids. Like, the first thing every kid does is dive into the sand to either bury themselves in it and pretend they're, you know, they're some underground creature, build sandcastles for crabs or whatever they find, you know, or just, just, in general, throw it at each other. I mean, it's the ultimate playground. It's sand. You can do whatever you want with it, and it doesn't actually come with directions. You just throw it out there. And literally, the most popular thing when I worked at Strong, every time we lost a kid, every time we lost a kid, we had a Code 66, immediately, those of us who worked there longer than three years went right to any of the sand or rice pits. Because nine times out of ten, that's where the kid was. Hmm. Nine times out of ten. The, the one time they weren't was usually because they were over in the Superhero Hall of Fame trying to do the little the little um, surfer thing. That, that was the other spot we would find them. Nine times out of ten, almost always in the sand or rice pits. Because it's sand. <laughs> it's fun. So I will argue that sand should have been in there sooner, actually, because we all played with sand. But let's get started. So let's start with, like you said, the art stuff. The first one in alphabetical for that category is the old-fashioned Crayola crayon. Yep. Oh, Crayola. It actually technically was Crayon that made it in, but Crayola is one of the bigger crayon companies at the time. So it kind of pink became Crayola. But it originally was just the crayon. Then they, we tacked Crayola on it because Crayola is is recognized and Crayola actually does a lot to foster kids uh, sense of art um, they do actually do a lot with donations to areas that do have an extra need for that but the interesting thing is with crayons they can actually date almost big, all the way back to Leonardo da Vinci in 1495 so crayons have been around for quite some time and there's actually a tie to Rochester with crayons. Okay. The Franklin Manufacturing Company, which was founded in 1876 in Rochester, New York, was one of the first companies to make and sell wax crayons. And in, in 1883, they appeared with a display of crayons at the World's Columbian Exposition. That year. So, go us. We were one of the first people to actually package and make wax crayons for people to use, or everyday people to use. Interesting. I definitely remember my big 72 set with the big plastic container, the little crayon sharpener at the bottom, 
all arranged in these nice little tiers. Oh my god! I remember. I always, I, I always, w- I hated. I always liked it to have a point. I didn't like it when it got down to the little round nub to the point that I always, I obsessively, obsessively <laughs> sharpened my crayons. But then I realized when I went to nature camp in Arundaquai for the summer it was a summer camp. We actually would. They told us to bring in all the crayon sharpest, um shavings that we had. We made candles out of it. Oh, nice. You, yeah. It was like, he was like, just bring in all the shavings. So we, when you have, when you have 20 kids and then we also had the little nubs of the crayons too. So we would bring those in as well. And we would just make all this array of colors and you can make candles like layered candles. And then we learned how to take, how to kind of carve them to give them design. So you could see the, the different designs of the colors. So, yeah, I mean, crayons, not just for coloring anymore, people. Mm-hmm. But interestingly enough, Crayola came, actually came into um, existence in 1903. And they are still, because Franklin, Franklin Packaging Company is not around anymore, they are one of the oldest crayon companies now. I mean, there's hundreds of companies that make crayons, but Crayola is still one of the best. And their gold medal design um, actually came out during the 1904 St. Louis Worlds, which they actually earned that with their dustless chalk. So that gold medal on the crayons is actually an award that Crayola won for dustless chalk. Interesting. Now, as far as games go, your typical crayon package isn't going to come with a game because, well, the point of art is freedom of creativity and games you know, there's rules to games. So, you know, rules are kind of the antithesis of art when you get down to it. So I have a question for you, though. What was the first thing you used in childhood to play the game of tic-tac-toe? Um, I used crayons. Chalk, actually. We used crayons. (laughs) We couldn't use the chalk on the chalkboard. It was parochial school. You didn't touch that. The nun would whoop you. Sidewalk chalk, to be precise. Oh, nice. See, with us, we used crayons because we could have crayons at our desk. So we would sit there and pass notes back. And you would pass it to the person in front of you, the person behind you, or the person to the side of you, and you would play tic-tac-toe. So yeah, crayons in that regard are a key accessory to playing a game, not something that is in and of itself a game. Because again, art. Yeah. But to me, art is play, too. I mean... Yeah, it's it's absolutely play. It's just, you know, this is a games podcast. I'm trying to tie everything back to games one way or another. But we did. Tic-tac-toe. Also, coloring between the lines. Hmm. I struggled with that. Can you tell? (laughs) So there is something also kind of interesting, um, too, with crayons as well. Dick and Ticonderosa is actually the successor for original. So we all know Dixon Ticonderoga for their pencils, right? Right. Their original name was the American Crayon Company. Go figure. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. (laughs) I know them for their pencils. And they're really cool erasers. But yeah. The next art toy up is the baby boomer favorite, the Etch-A-Sketch. Oh my God. (laughs) Yep. Introduced... On, in July of 1960, costing just three bucks and sold 600,000 units in its first year of production 
via the Ohio Art Company, and this, this little uh, magnetic de- device. I, want to, I almost want to call it magnetic, but I don't think it's just mechanical, not not magnetic. Well, it is and it isn't. So this mechanical drawing to- toy was actually invented by André Cassonis of France, and like. James said, the Ohio Art Company is the one who started manufacturing it. It is currently owned now by our neighbors across Lake Ontario, Spin Master of Ontario, Canada. Um, Don't they also own Rubik's Cube? I want to say yes. So um, it is. It's it's actually an aluminum powder on the back of the screen, so it leaves a solid line. It's got a stylus that goes through and pushes it up and does that, and then you shake it. And I was... Some of the things I've watched people make on these, I'm sitting there and I'm like, yeah, I'm out. <laughs> you win. Yeah, all I Hi, could boss. accomplish were straight lines. I tried to draw Bugs Bunny once and it was more like Box Bunny. Hey, it was pixel art, which is now a thing. To me, I could do like the curve around, like I could do the frame and then I would like try to draw like some geometric. Yeah, I, I did horrible at that. And you know what it reminds me of? And this tells you kind of how... Very old school, my family could be at times. They used to have, remember the, the sheets of paper with the magnet that was magnet and you had the stylus and you could draw, you can move it and draw hair on like the guy because it would move the little iron fillings or yes. whatever was in there. Yeah, it reminded me, it was like the highest class version of that. Okay. So it's kind of a plot, it's what is known as a plotter. Um, is what the Etch-a-Sketch is. And if you actually want to see like the actual insides of an Etch-a-Sketch, go onto the Wikipedia page because they actually kind of have it on there. The original name for the Etch-a-Sketch was the Magic Screen. I think that's a cooler name. It's the Magic Screen. It actually originally used a glass plate glass screen. Um, unfortunately, there are parents out there who cry that this was dangerous for children because it could break. So they switched it over to plastic. You people are no fun. Now, uh, I can easily tie the Etch-A-Sketch over to games. Because back in the 80s, my <laughs> sister and I had these little plastic overlays we could put on an Etch-A-Sketch. <gasps> that allowed you to put to do mazes, to do drawing challenges with them. Some of them were themed to the Looney Tunes. They were pretty primitive, but they were still definitely an inexpensive and very creative way to get more play application out of the device. Mm, the other also thing they also had too was they did come up with um, Etch-a-Sketch for the gaming systems, including a plug-and-play. So there was Etch-a-Sketch Animator. There was an Etch-a-Sketch uh, ETO plug-and-play drawing system that you could just literally plug into your TV set and start sketching with it on there. There was a color Etch-a-Sketch. That's wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry, Etch-a-Sketch is black and white. Sorry, I'm weird. So Etch-a-Sketch is interesting because you would just, because most people look at it and they're just like, it's an Etch-a-Sketch, but there's so much you could do with an Etch-a-Sketch. I want to say it was probably the first time people actually started looking at drawing as more than just freehand, because with the Etch-a-Sketch, you do have rules. You're controlled by the knobs. It's what you could do with the knob. But you can also tell when your Etch-a-Sketch has definitely taken a beating. Because mm-hmm. it doesn't clear as well after a while. So yeah. And of course, you. we remember seeing Etch a Sketch in the first two Toy Story movies. Yes, Etch a Sketch was. Di- used to, we used to joke after a while. Every time they came out with a new Toy Story movie, we would look at what new toys popped up, and we're like, "Up, oh, those will be in the Hall of Fame this year." Hmm. 
<laughs> or we used to play. We used to. We used to, It's really sad. We used to play a drinking game. Me and me and Miranda. Where every time we would watch something, a Toy Story, we would take a shot every time we saw something that was from the Toy Hall of Fame. Did you end up sloshed? Yep. Yeah, that was that was that was not fun. Of course, we were doing it back in like the two thousand and tens or the two early two thousand. So you know, the movies had been out for a little while, so we were able to do. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that was a fun night. It was better than watching uh, George Bush's uh, State of the Union address. Oh. So our last art toy is Play-Doh. <gasps> Play-Doh! You were not allowed to leave the kitchen with that stuff. Oh. <laughs> Play-Doh is, is a modeling compound. It's basically a kid's clay. And it's really soft and reusable and pliable to all kinds of different things. Do you know what its initial use was for? Um, do tell. Wallpaper cleaner. Oh, my <laughs> In the 1930s, and then it was reworked as a child's toy. It's actually a non-toxic reusable modeling compound that people would actually roll on, t- would actually take cl- uh, coal residue off of wallpaper. I remember back, back then, people still used coal. Following World War II, when places had transitioned from coal-based home heating to natural gas, they needed to find something else for it to do. And then they realized through Mr. McVicker's nephew actually literally started playing with it and gave it to a nursery school teacher who actually tested it on her students. And it was a hit. So they transitioned from selling it as a wallpaper cleaner to a child's toy. And the school teacher who did it was Kay Zufall. And she persuaded the McVickers to sell it as a kid's toy. Originally, they wanted to call it Rainbow Modeling Compound. But Kay Azufal and her husband convinced him to name it Play-Doh. And since then, more than 2 billion cans of Play-Doh were sold between 1955 and 2005. And of course, how many of us had, in that first purchase of Play-Doh, the Fun Factory? I did. So did I. And much spaghetti was made. Indeed. And the interesting thing with Play-Doh is, is eventually artists kind of took a look at it and it came up with kind of the claymation animation that we still some we still see used today by various companies like um, Lucas, which did uh, Coraline, the Box Trolls, Norman Don't Paranormal, forget Artman. And Artman, yep. So this Play-Doh went from more than just kids play to adult play and including it was actually the modeling used for a video game called uh claymates mm-hmm. can tell. and there's also a couple different uh play-doh uh kids games on on your smartphones like play-doh touch mm-hmm so to mark its 50th anniversary, Demeter Fragrance Library created a limited edition fragrance of the Play-Doh's distinctive odor. So yes, someone decided that it would be a great idea to make Play-Doh perfume. Well, that's not the only thing about that scent. Do you know what movie director grew up loving that smell? Who? James Gunn. Not surprised, honestly, given what we know about James. Yeah, and he would even give cans of Play-Doh to people who he was particularly impressed by on his productions. How can you not enjoy Play-Doh, though? Like, it's Play-Doh, like, 
I guarantee you, like I could walk into, I can walk into the residence room at work, throw down a couple of cans of Play-Doh, walk away, and I'll come back and at least half the residents will be playing with that stuff. Hmm. Try and probably do atomical models with it, but still having a good time. You cannot, it's like, once you see Play-Doh, it's like you have to touch it. It's like, it's a new addiction. Basically. So those are the arc toys. Yep. <laughs> you didn't think we were going to pull out arc toys out of this one. So what's next on our list to talk about? Well, let, let's go to the top of the alphabetical list and talk about the glamour girl of the schoolyard set, Barbie. Mm. Interesting thing with Barbie, when Barbie was inducted, there was actually a small good nature protest from students at the Wilmette University because Ken was not included with Barbie. And they also were upset when Mr. Potato Head wasn't part of the initial list of inductees. Of course, Mr. Potato Head made it in next year. He did. He actually, was it next year? Yeah, 2000. So yeah, it was, there's that little bit. But yes, the glamour girl herself, Barbie. The original Fascinisha, the woman who could do everything. Men want her. Women want to be her. I don't know why. She's completely outproportioned. <laughs> yeah, those, those feet. Her waist alone has absolutely no room for her intestines. Yeah, but I still can't get over how tiny her feet. You can tell this was designed by a woman who wants to fit into all the cute shoes. This is fair enough. And that is the most sexist comment I have made on this podcast, and I apologize. No, because you were not wrong. This was the 1950, 1959 was when Barbie was launched. She was a fashion doll, and she was created by Mattel. American businesswoman Ruth Handler is credited with the creation of the doll using a German doll by Bill Lilly as her inspiration. Barbie has actually been the figurehead of Mattel to the point that even though Barbie's in the Toy Hall of Fame, we actually could not, when I worked at Strong, Mattel had such a huge copyright strike against that that we could not use the weekend to sell. There was an actual specific weekend that's Barbie's birthday weekend in March. It's March 9th. Mm-hmm. That we would do what's known as America's favorite doll. Because we couldn't use the word Barbie. Because Mattel, even though their toy was in the Toy Hall of Fame, told us that we were not allowed to use it unless we were willing to pay royalties. We're a nonprofit museum. That ain't happening. So you, you didn't get around it by having uh, ribs and chicken wings and making it a barbecue? We thought about it. That did not go over well with the board. <laughs> Hey, I joke. Trust me, there were we made many jokes on that weekend. We had to call it America's favorite doll, and we actually had my friend Sarah Peters played Kiki, who was Barbie's, who was America's favorite doll's favorite fashion designer, and would actually tell all the kids that they were gorgeous the way they were, and they were allowed to strut their stuff on the runway, wearing whatever costumes they found, and they were fabulous. It was actually one of my favorite weekends. Now, I do want to bring up the documentary series, The Toys That Made Us, Mm -hmm. because their Barbie episode, for someone, you know, who grew up a stereotypical 80s, somewhat stereotypical 80s kid and was not interested in Barbies, this one had me spellbound. Barbie has had a very fat, has a very fascinating history and legacy. Interestingly enough, uh, we used to have an exhibit at Strong that was called When Barbie Dated G.I. Joe, because Ken was not really around until much later. So Barbie was a single woman having a good time and wearing whatever the hell she wanted. 
And actually, believe it or not, Barbie and Ken are named after Ruth Handler's two children, Barbara and Kenneth. Interesting. Mm-hmm. When you think about the directions Barbie has gone in. Yep. Lily, so the doll they bought was called a Build Lily doll, and it was actually based off a comic strip drawn by Reinhard Boothin for the newspaper Built. Lily was a blunt bombshell working girl who knew what she wanted and was not above using men to get it. We'll let you draw your own conclusions for what the name for that is. She was actually first sold in Germany in, eight, in 1955, but was only sold to adults. She started picking up popularity with the kids who enjoyed dressing her up in outfits that was sold separately. Handler took one of these and took it back to Mattel and with the help of Jack Ryan, redesigned Barbie. Jack Ryan is a character. And he's part of the reason that Toys That Made Us episode is so fascinating. When being the sixth husband of Zsa Zsa Gabor is one of the less interesting things about you. Wow. You had a hell of a life at that point. So what did come out of this, though, is the per- the people who made the Lily Dolls actually sued Mattel once, uh, in March, actually in March of 1961, because... They claim that Mattel stole, pretty much stole the patent for the ball hip joint, which was very significant to the Lily Dolls. So Barbie, because they used that exact same ball joint, was a takeoff and copy of their doll. Also, they claim Mattel falsely, misleadingly represented itself as having originated design. Mattel counterclaimed it was settled out of court. And then eventually in 1964, Mattel bought the copyright claim and the patent for $21,600. Now, Barbie may not be as prominent as she once was, as tastes and toys aimed at young women have changed a good bit. I will say, uh, in my opinion, and I know there's going to be people out there who will fight me on this, but if you really kind of think about it, Barbie really was the first feminist. She could be whatever you wanted her to be. She didn't come packaged with Ken. So if you wanted Barbie to be with Ken, you had to buy Ken separately, which means you could have her have a boyfriend or decide, nope, girlfriend's going to be on her own. And of course, there's been all manner of different Barbies, ranging from veterinarians to ballerinas to presidential candidates. And president. Yeah. I mean, if you thought her little politics speech in Toy Story 3 was out of nowhere, the context of her having been president in her own toy universe makes it make much more sense. Indeed. I still think my favorite one was when, because I'm a huge Phantom of the Opera fan, was when they did Christine and the Phantom from Phantom of the Operas in the 80s. They have the dolls at the museum, and I have seen them. I have not seen them outside of the case because I wasn't that high up. I helped celebrate the stuff, but I wasn't allowed to touch the stuff, which I'm actually kind of okay with. Unless it was the Video Game Hall of Fame, then you know I was up there as much as Shannon would let me be. Barbie Barbie has been everything and anything. Including a video game star, starting with the 1991 NES game. Mm-hmm, where you had to choose what your date was with Ken. Yeah, that unfortunately, this being a quote-unquote girl's property meant that Barbie video games were rarely priorities for the development firms or publishers. Because apparently, according to them, girls don't play video games. Suck it. Baloney. 
They can suck me. I'm sorry. I've been playing video games since I was little. My dad made sure I knew how to do that. And they did get flack over that too. So in 2010, they came out with a children's book called Barbie, I Can Be a Computer and Engineer, which portrayed Barbie as a game designer who was not technically sophisticated and needed the boys' help. Oh, no. So with the backlash of that, now I understand the point of the book is that when you're stuck in a spot, you should always ask for help. However, if you're going to do that, do not have the two computer tech gurus be boys. One be a boy, one be a girl. Both be girls. Who cares? It was just, and I can understand where people were pissed on it, and I can understand where Mattel's coming from, because one of the things when women are in the working world is, if we ask for help, for some reason, there are certain men above a certain age, or of a, or any guy, not all of them, but some of them, will treat that person, that woman, less than an equal because you asked for help. So I think the purpose of the book was trying to tell girls, hey, if you don't get it, it's fine. Ask for help. That's what your teammates are there for. Yeah, I think they just kind of tripped over themselves doing it. I think they did. So what they ended up doing um, in response to this, and I do give them kudos for this, was they ended up creating and redesigning engineer computer engineer Barbie from a game program to to a video game programmer rather than having her be a designer. So they kind of were like, okay, we hear you. She can now program, which I give them kudos. Another interesting thing with Mattel is uh, in 1980, they introduced the first black Barbie. And the brand, as of now, offers over 22 skin tones, 94 hair colors, 13 eye colors, and up to five different body types. Another interesting too, thing for Barbie. So I feel so, so bad for Mattel because they really kind of tripped up on this. Barbie's friend Midge was pregnant in, tw- in 2002. She was actually supposed to be married, but conservatives thought it was promoting teenage pregnancy because of how young Midge looked. Not noticing that you can buy Midge's husband separately. Okay, should we should we keep moving? Yes, let's keep moving. I've spent way too much time on this. The other doll in that initial batch of the Toy Hall of Fame is the teddy bear. Teddy! Of course, plush toys had existed for ages and ages beforehand, but the name Teddy Bear is inspired by U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt. Yep. Who apparently hated being called that. What, Teddy? Yeah. Dude, you're stuck with it. <laughs> How could you not? Well, he, he's not going to be complaining about it anymore, obviously. Oh, no. no, he probably could. He probably could. That man, if anyone knows the history and the life of Teddy Roosevelt, let me tell you, if that man wanted to come back from the dead and complain about how we refer to him, he'd find a way to do it. But yeah, he kind of hated the name Teddy because it made him sound soft. So his nickname actually initiate was actually due to an incident on a bear hunting trip in 1902, in which he was invited by the Michigan governor, uh, Andrew Longino. So yeah, he refused. To, so what happened was, was a couple of his aides found a bear, beat it, and then told Teddy Roosevelt to shoot it because he was the only person on this bear hunt that hadn't gotten a bear yet. He refused to. 
because he didn't think that was sportsmanlike of what they did. But specifically, because, yeah, you, you, specifically, a group of them had cornered, clubbed, and tied down an American black bear just so he could have an easy target. Yeah, after being chased by hounds, and he, when he heard what they did, he refused to do it. But he did tell them to put the bear out of its misery because of what they did. He was furious with what happened. So it became a topic of political cartoon, which he really hated. Literally, he, 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 hated, he hated it. And then originally, the original cartoon was of it being a big black, an actual adult black bear. And then they made it into a cub. And it was like, yeah, he was furious about it. But in response to that, Morris Mitchum saw a drawing of Roosevelt and was inspired to create the teddy bear. And actually, one of his kids owned one. Kermit Roosevelt um, actually owned one of the original teddy bears. And that currently sits in the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. Which I think is really kind of cool. Like, he hated that name, and yet, for some reason, like... His kid had one. Oh my god, that's so mean. The teddy bear actually inspired several different things, including a children's book called The Roosevelt Bears and the Teddy Bear Picnic. And of course, this is also not to mention things like Winnie the Pooh, Paddington Bear, the Care Bears, and the, the raunchy comedy movies Ted and its sequel. Yeah, so one of the cool things I can I would like to just add about the teddy bear. When I worked at Strong, we actually had one of the curators, not a curator, but he was kind of one of the restorers. We called him the teddy bear doctor because anytime that we got a donation of a bear that was ripped, tattered, destroyed, whatever, he could somehow always put them back together. And we just adored him. He was one of the sweetest guys you would ever meet. And when he retired, we made him a little teddy bear doctor with a sling <laughs> mm. and, and a needle kind of sticking out of like a, like a part, part of like a fabric needle that looked like it was being stitched. That was our parting gift to him because, I mean, he saved so many teddy bears, so many teddy bears that came into this museum. Teddy bears have also evolved into what you guys may know of as the Care Bears. Yep, I mentioned Teddy, those. And Teddy Ruxpin. As far as games with a with a teddy bear in it in them, there's not many where you play as one. No. We found the uh, 2010 game Naughty Bear on PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, and iOS, which mm-hmm. is kind of an action adventure title. I don't I don't think I've ever played it and there's the game stuffed on steam which is a procedurally generated first person shooter where you play as a teddy bear and protect a, a young girl from her nightmares there's another one i'm trying to remember what it's called it's one where you play kind of a baby and your teddy bear is kind of your guide as you're trying to avoid this witch and stuff i'm trying to remember what it's called it's like a horror it's a horror one Oh my god, I just saw, it was something with sleep, where the little kid's trying to sleep. Hang on. Teddy bear. He's gonna do video horror games. Oh my god. Among the sleep. That's what it's called. Okay. Among the sleep. Or is it among, yeah, among the sleep, where it is, you, where you're playing, you're accompanied by a sentient teddy bear, and the teddy bear is trying to help you survive um, the night. 
And it, it's much dark. It actually, once you realize what it's all about, it's much darker than that. Like, when you realize, like, who the actual, like, villain in it, oh, it's, it will make you cry. It's, it's a very, it's a very um, heavy game. But it is in that. Um, teddy bears have, for the longest time, kept children asleep and protected them from the monsters under their bed and the monsters in their closet. I think everyone knows, remembers their first teddy bear. Mm-hmm. Some of us still have their first teddy bear. I don't know where, but I know it moved with us because that crap wasn't going anywhere. For a long time, my mom collected them. <laughs> I still have one that looks like Professor Moriarty, and I still call him Moriarty. My mom's like, this is Bob, and that's Joanne because he's got a little girlfriend. So she named it after her and dad. But yeah, I mean, teddy bears for the longest time were like one of my first like playmates. Like, when I was younger, because I wasn't very social, surprisingly enough. So we used right. to play, I used to play checkers with it. Obviously playing for both sides. <laughs> they were, I, 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 I laugh, but I did the same thing. Let me tell you something. Teddy Bear was the original player, too. And that's what I'm going to say on that. <laughs> so we've been at this for a good bit, and we've still got 12 to go. All right, well, let's do a quick overview of the rest of them. Are we, or, or we can turn this into a two-parter. I'm okay with the two-parter. I can work with that. So why don't we do at least two more? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to single out the Dunkin' Yo-Yo. Oh, my God. Yo-Yos. Ugh. I used to be so good and so bad at them at the same time. My father was amazing at Yo-Yos. So tell us more about the Dunkin' Yo-Yo. Well, it's it's a pretty simple toy. It's a it's basically a simple axle connected to two discs with a string tied around the axle and you can just send it down, pull it back up via the string. Physics at its finest. I myself was never very good with one of these things. I could just do the up down bit. But I, I could never walk the dog. I could barely around the world. And I could never do any of the more advanced tricks. I could do, um, I can do the one where you go down and you could have it right up the string where you still have the loop behind it. I could do that one. I could do walk the dog for like two seconds. Around the world, around the world in my, to me, was literally spinning it around my head and not killing anybody. (laughs) Low, low standards, people. Low standards. (laughs) So when was the yo-yo invented? We don't know. Oh. The earliest known yo-yo was shown on a on a terracotta painting coming from or from other a vase painting coming from Greece in 440 BC. Huh. So so this is kind of one of those it's always been there but nobody knows really where it came from. Yeah. But of course, the modern yo-yo we know and love from Duncan showed up in 1946. Oh my goodness. Dun, dun, dun. If there's anyone out there who understands the yo-yo better than us, please, please email us. This is like, yeah, the yo-yo was like one of those things where I was just like, huh, okay. Yeah, the earliest that even Wikipedia has it at is like 500 B.C. But interesting enough, the first yo-yo company 
was actually founded by Pedro Flores in 1928, who was a Filipino immigrant to the United States, and his company was named, interestingly enough, the Yo-Yo Manufacturing Company. But yeah, this sucker's been around, like, the Yo-Yo has actually been called the Bantalori. Oh my god, what's all the different... The names, the different names for this thing. You know who's arguably the most famous user of the Yo-Yo? Who? Tom Smothers. Really? Yeah. Part of their routine involved him doing yo-yo tricks for the Smothers Brothers. Very kind of cool. I'm sure if I yelled out to my mom about that, she'd probably like, oh yeah, I remember that. She was a Smothers Brothers fan. But yeah, I mean, my God, for such a simple design. And of course, yo-yos have been used frequently in video games as a weapon. Yes. Which makes sense, because you ever get hit in the noggin with one of those things? It hurts. It's a weapon in Earthbound. Yep, it's a weapon in the Goonies 2, and it's a weapon in the Star Tropics series. Yes, it's right! Man, Mike Mike uses that. I think it's one of his first weapons, is the yo-yo. It is his first weapon. Oh my god. Although, due to copyright it. reasons, they have to call it a star. How do you copyright a yo-yo? I guess you have to be a yo-yo to think it's a good idea. Like, how do you copyright yo-yo? Like, dude, that's like copywriting the word real. And we all know the company that attempted to do that at one point. Like, the yo-yo has been around forever. Like, dude, you can't copyright something you didn't invent. Oh, my lord. My head hurts. The name yo oh I see it here. The name Yo-Yo was registered in 1932 by Sam Dubliner in Vancouver, Canada. All right, dude, I'm looking at you, Mr. Dubliner. So. You caused this nonsense. Fix it. All right, Chrissy, what's your pick for for the last one you want to cover? How about the one thing I was never ever ever good at? Hula hooping. Oh. I was better at frisbee. I was better frisbee. Hula hoops. Mm-hmm. Which you can twirl around your waist, your limbs, or your neck. As somebody who's claustrophobic and does not like anything around my neck, how? With great difficulty, that's how. Yeah. So, hula hoops have been used, been made out of willow, rattan, grapevines, and stiff grass. Yeah, much like the yo-yo, they've been around for ages, since at least 500 B.C. In, Mm -hmm. you know, toy hoops, at least. There was the Native American hoop dance, which is a form of storytelling that incorporates the hoops as a prop. They use them to actually make static and dynamic shapes, which represent various animals, symbols, and storytelling elements. And actually, it's usually done by a solo dancer with multiple hoops. Yeah, I remember seeing a presentation of that in the second grade and being transfixed by what the guy could do with them. I I would love to see that. I was I my school was not that that hardcore. Eventually, it was marketed by Whammo Toy Company. The hula in the name is actually based off of the um, Hawaiian or the Polynesian ty- style of dancing known as hula, which I actually learned the trick and how to do that. It's all on the and knees. I, no, it's 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 literally just lifting your lifting your feet up and then that moves your hips and that's the hula. Okay. That was fun to learn because it was like, oh my god, I got to try to move it. So hooping has actually become a very widespread activity. It is extremely popular. It is a popular fitness activity. Fire hooping is interesting where they set it on fire. 
Um, collapsible hooping uh, hula hoops have been made for easy transport versatility, and then there's weighted hula hoops that allow you to use them as exercise. I still remember my the, my favorite reference to hula hooping is in Brooklyn Nine Nine, when Captain Holt shows off his pictures to Adam Sandberg's character Peralta, and then deletes them. And when Peralta's like, "What?" but he goes, "Now no one will believe you." Oh dear! Oh my God! It was it was awesome to just see. Like he went through all the different techniques and pretty much what he like, um, like what he got. It was featured on Mash in Who Knows, where Klinger observes some children playing with a ring barrel and fashions a hula hoop toy for them. He also tried to get Major Winchester into promote into actually investing in it, and he refused to, <laughs> not realizing it came a big thing. You can also hula hoop in the Wii Fit game franchise. Of course you can. Also, there is a movie from 1994, and it is hilarious as heck, called uh, Hudsucker Proxy with Tim Robbins, where a mailroom clerk creates the hula hoop and saves this company, even though they're trying to kill the company. Oh. You have to watch it, James. You would enjoy this movie. Tim Robbins is amazing in it. It also was featured in the Alvin and the Chipmunk song, Christmas Don't Be Late, where Alan keeps asking for a hula hoop. Alvin! I had to do it. You had to. I, that's why I'm not even stopping you on that one. I was like, no, you kind of got to do that one. So literally, like James says, this has been around forever. Hoops have been part of many cultures, not only for um, storytelling purposes and religious purposes, but... Kids have constantly played with hoops their whole life. So hula hooping in the form it is used, it has been used in many different ways. The most interesting use for hula hooping, which circles it back, was Charles Panetti. He's an author from 14th century England, recorded a craze of using wooden and metal hoops to help patients suffering from pain dislocated pack. They actually use it as an exercise. The only thing only thing of that they had a uh, side fact to it was some people did drop back down from heart failure due to hooping. Oh. Wah, wah. We were trying to do it to do all this other stuff and yet we still killed you. Who knew? Now aside from We Fit, I wonder what other video games have used a hula hoop. I know hula hoop competitions are a big thing. Oh yeah they are. Um, I'm not sure. I do know it popped up in Wally, uh, where Wally's first encounter with Hula Hoop was swinging it around its neck. There was a song called Hula Hoop to the Loop that was dedicated to the toy. Okay. I don't know for games, though. There was a Hula Hoop song uh, sang by Georgia Gibbs on the Ed Sullivan Show, and it became her last top 40 hit. She didn't really hit the charts again after that, but for video games? I got something. What you got? In Soul Calibur Four. The character Tira, she attacks with like a bladed hoop weapon. Her joke weapon is a hula hoop. Oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. All right, that wins. That, that's okay. one of the better ones. Took me a little bit, but we got there. Hey, we would have found it somewhere or another. Yep. And when we return next week, we're going to talk about the building toys. We're going to talk about marbles, Monopoly, Viewmaster, and more. 
because this one turned out to be much more than we could chew for a podcast that is considerate of our listeners' time. Yeah, we kind of don't want to waste your time. Kind of. So, we're going to take a short break, and when we return, we will have this day in gaming history, which ties into next week. So stay tuned. Want to support the Irregulars? Head over to www.patreon.com backslash FC3ROC. We're part of the media division of Flower City Comic Con, based in Rochester, New York. We're a non-profit group. Everything we make off of Patreon and everything else we do goes right back into putting on our future conventions and other events, from reserving the facilities to bringing in guests. If you pledge any amount, even a slim dollar... You will receive improved access to my blog entries, where every Tuesday I go over current video game news and write retrospectives on old-school arcade games, all delivered conveniently to your inbox. There's plenty of other perks and rewards, and if you don't see what you're looking for, reach out to the crew. They'll be happy to work with you. Want to get a hold of us in particular? You can email Christy directly at k-r-i-s-s-i at fc3roc dot org and me at j-a-m-e-s at fc3roc dot org. At the moment, we're still working out most social media matters, but we are indeed on Facebook at Gaming Street Irregulars. Chrissy and I are fairly frequently there sharing news and things we find cool, and begging, I mean asking, for your questions and answers to be used in upcoming episodes. Yeah, asking, that's the ticket. We love hearing from you all, whether you have praise, constructive criticism, or just want to share something cool and gaming-related yourselves. Also, wherever you find FC3 on social media, we're usually not too far behind, so if you reach out to them with something for us, they'll get it to us shortly. Legally speaking, all music, sound effects, voice clips, and so on are the properties of their respective owners. We make no claim to them and have no intention of profiting off of them. Please don't sue us. We have nothing you'd want. This is probably going to be our most recent Today in Gaming History entry, because I was scanning up and down and left and right to figure out what to use for this one. Sometimes it's feast or famine. Yeah, nothing was jumping out at me, but then I get to 2017, and I see Lego Dimensions. Ooh, yes. And on this day, the story pack based on the Lego Batman movie was released. Haha. <laughs> Lego Dimensions is fun. Yeah, I'm I'm sad that Lego Dimensions didn't get to fulfill its three year plan. Well, you know, it's it's hard. I think there was a lot of open world games at that time, like Lego Dimensions. You had uh Yeah, the, the Toys Dis- to Life games. Yeah, like You had the- Disney Infinity, you had Skylanders, and you had a bunch of cheap knockoffs. You had the Mebos from, from Nintendo. I mean it was a very oversaturated scene by then. Yeah, and, and we'll get into that in a future episode, probably sometime in May. Probably. But what was neat about the Lego Batman movie pack is that the Lego Batman movie itself 
was kind of a crossover with a bunch of other media properties. Uh, this is a spoiler alert for the movie, folks. It's been out for four it's years been out, now. But we still want to let you know that this is going to kind of spoil things. The Joker's big plot is he's going to ditch his old Arkham inmate buddies in favor of the worst villains of all time who've been trapped in the Phantom Zone. And these villains include King Kong, the Kraken from Clash of the Titans, Jaws, Dracula, the Gremlins, the Wicked Witch of the West, Agent Smith from the Matrix. Wow, that's the most recent one out of all of them. And the Daleks. Oh my god, you don't even need it. You just need Daleks. That's all you need. And as my friend Justin and I are watching this, oh, and Sauron from Lord of the Rings. Oh, really? Yeah. Christopher Lee Sauron or... Hmm. That, that's Saruman. Oh, never mind. Sar- the, we're talking the big eye. The big eye? Yeah. Okay. But as Justin and I are watch- we're watching this in the theater, we were realizing that's Gremlins. That's in Lego Dimensions. Wicked Witch of the West. That's in Lego Dimensions. The Daleks. They're in Lego Dimensions. Oh my god, they can actually use most of this in the Lego Dimensions version of this. And sure enough, they did. They they were planning. I have to tell you. Um, so have you seen have you seen the Lego sets out for uh, the D- new Doctor Strange movie, Across the Multiverse? Yeah, I've seen. There's just one of them so far. Did you see? Is it the one with? I swear to God, this is how much of a D and D geek I've become. I literally was walking by one, and it had what on it looked like to be a beholder. And I had to do a double take because at first I thought they made a Legos was making D&D games, like D&D kits. I was like, wait, what? Yeah, that's actually one of two characters. The script spoilers we've been hearing says that it's Shuma Gorath who appeared in the Marvel vs. Capcom games. That was his most prominent thing before this movie. Hmm. But the box says it's Gargantos, who's an obscure Namor villain. Yeah, I mean, I don't, yeah, it was one of those where I saw, but like I said, I walked by it and I had to do a double take. I, honest to God, thought it was a beholder, and I, honest to God, thought Lego was finally making D&D content, because I would love them to make Zelda content. They already have Mario going, do fucking Zelda next, please. I would have Which my- Which reminds room. me, I had I found some, uh, quote-unquote, gray market Lego minifigures of Link and Zelda that I've purchased for use in my little Lego arcade. Ooh, that'll be perfect. I'll have to show you them. I can't wait to see them. But yeah, like it w- that was my moment of like, this is how much of becoming a DM I've started becoming is like, I look up for like anything like D&D now. Like, I'm like, holy crap. I'm like, I'm obsessed. I need to just start the game. Hopefully we'll get our chance Friday. Hopefully. May the weather be on our side. Absolutely. And on that hopeful note, we're going to bid you adieu. For Chrissy Harding, this has been Gaming Street Irregulars. I'm James Irish. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, game on. Bye, everyone.